0: Hola, ¿qué tal? Buenos dias, buenas tardes. I don't know what time of day it is where you're listening from or what time you listen to this podcast, but I'm glad that you're listening. And a warm welcome. I'm your host for When in Spain. My name's Paul Burge, a British guy living in Spain. And uh, well, if you're new around here and uh, you're not exactly sure what this show is all about, well, it's all about Spain, Spanish culture, Spanish life, people, places, a bit of armchair travel cultural insights, my personal observations and insights on life in Spain. There are episodes offering practical advice for all different things if you're planning to come and live and work here and of course I must mention our fantastic guests. And speaking of guests, this episode is no exception. Joining me in this episode, part two of my conversation with William Chislett. Last episode I was talking to him about the transition to democracy in Spain, the death of Franco, a monumental period in Spanish history really, how Spain reinvented itself again after 40 years of dictatorship to become a democratic country. If you haven't listened to that episode, do go back and uh, check it out. It's really interesting. Uh, William Chislett was a correspondent here in Madrid uh, from 1975 until 1978. And he covered uh, firsthand for the Times newspaper in London, the transition to democracy. And that's what we talked about in the last episode. In this episode, we're bringing it up to date. So this is part two of the conversation with William Chislett, who incidentally writes extensively on Spain. And he's actually got a new book out this week, week which is called Microhistoria de España the sort of short history I suppose of Spain and it's actually uh, an updated edition of his original book which was published in 2013 called Spain what everyone needs to know and I would highly recommend getting your hands on a copy of this book uh, if you're interested in Spanish history society politics economics that kind of thing but it's uh, written in a very digestible and accessible way So if you'd like to read it in English, it's called Spain, What Everyone Needs to Know. And the Spanish version, which has just been published, is called the Micro Historia de España, if you'd like to read it in Spanish. In the new Spanish version, William's uh, brought it up to date. So what is William talking to us about in this episode? Well, we're going to be looking at Spain today and the challenges that Spain faces today in the future. We're going to be looking at issues concerning education, the education system in Spain. We're going to be looking at the problem uh, with pensions, which is not a problem unique to Spain, but uh, Spain certainly does have uh, a bit of a crisis on its hands uh, regarding pensions and retirement. We're going to be looking at employment and, of course, unemployment in Spain as well, and the uh, vida laboral, uh, working life in Spain, and the many issues and problems Problems that uh, are related to that situation. We also talk about the Spanish economy, diversity in the Spanish economy. And at the end of this episode, we're going to be talking about COVID-19 and the uh, European Union's Pandemic Recovery Fund and how potentially this will help Spain. 140 billion euros, a huge amount of money, which is going to be divided between grants and loans. And William uh, talks about that and uh, gives his insights and his perspectives and his opinions on how potentially that could uh, help transform the Spanish economy in the future. But just before we get into that, just to say, indeed, if you are new to this podcast, that When In Spain is on Instagram, give us a follow on there and you'll see lots of photos of the guests that I have on the show. You will see photographs from the different travels that I make around Madrid and Spain, where I'm based. I'm speaking to you right from the centre of a very sunny and quite warm for October, actually, Madrid. You can follow us on Twitter. And I must also make a little mention of the fairly new When in Spain website, which you can find at wheninspainpodcast.com There I post all of the episodes. Um, I'm still working on putting all of the back catalogue of episodes on there, but all of the recent episodes get posted on the website for you to stream, if that's easier for you. Uh, Of course the podcast is available on all of the usual uh, podcast platforms, Apple, iTunes, Spotify, all of the different Android uh, apps that you have on your phone as well. If you're a super fan of Spain, Uh, You can also find the When in Spain Facebook group. About 4,000 members on there. Like-minded Spain lovers, Spain fans. Uh, So if you'd like to socialise with them, uh, head across to Facebook. Join the group. You can join for free. And it's your place to ask any questions, post anything which you think is interesting for other members as well. And one last thing, just before we get into the interview with William. If you have been listening to the podcast for a little while now and you enjoy it and you find it uh, useful and entertaining, um, please do consider supporting the podcast i'm an indie podcast i uh, don't have the backing of any big media operations or sponsors or advertising or anything like that it's just me uh, doing it in my free time so if you enjoy it please consider supporting it on the crowdfunding website patreon and you can find when in spain's patreon page at patreon.com forward slash when in Spain, dot com forward slash when in spain and you can sign up to make uh, donations any amounts you'd like uh, a monthly donation from as little as uh, one dollar three dollars i'll give you a shout out on the podcast if you sign up at five dollars or more you will get access to bonus when in spain content that's enough of that so let's get into the interview with william chislett my first question to him was how spain changed beyond all recognition, comparing today modern Spain with Spain just after the death of Franco and the transition to democracy. So that's where we pick up the conversation. In 1982, Alonso Guerra, the uh, deputy prime minister there, said we're going to change Spain so much she'll be completely unrecognisable. Is it unrecognisable now?
1: not unrecognisable because it means that, you know, many of many of the things that we enjoy about Spain will no longer be here. Economically, it is unrecognizable, although tourism is still the main industry here, as it was in 82. We no longer have any steel plants, I think I'm right in saying. We have a flourishing car industry, which was in its infancy, well not quite, no, maybe say its adolescence in 82, now it's very much in its adulthood. But essentially, politically, it's also unrecognizable. We have 16 parties in Parliament. I don't know how many there were in 82, but I don't think there were 16. But of course, we now have a very unstable Parliament. Many Spaniards yearn for the time when we either had a PP government or a Perseveri government, preferably with an absolute majority. Those days, I think, are gone forever. Do
0: you think so?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we have a coalition at the moment, which many people don't realise. Malta is now the only country in the EU... That has not had a coalition government in the last 40 years, right, and Spain now has one and has had one for not very long. Yeah. And and as you can see, it's a fairly squabbling coalition government, which I suppose by definition coalition governments tend to be. But this one seems to be pulling in different directions. I mean, Podemos and Socialists, for example, Podemos wants to get rid of the monarchy, says it publicly, uh, which I think is absolute disaster. Don Pedro Sanchez either is an unable or unwilling to sort of call order and say hey you know you're in the government we are a government that supports the monarchy you should be saying these things.
0: That's quite a good segue to take us up to date. The challenges that Spain faces, structural changes, and you've written quite extensively on this. I would like to start with education, because I think, in your opinion, this is the kind of root of many problems in Spanish society and the Spanish economy today, is the education system. Tons of reforms over the years, but really, in practice, doesn't seem to have changed very much. What are the problems that you see with the education system in Spain?
1: This is a country that has... A, an early school leaving rate. Mm-hmm. By that I mean those who reach the age of 16, mm-hmm. which is legal age when you can leave school, of 17% at the moment. It, at the height of the boom period up until 2008, the early school leaving rate was 32%. So in other words, one in three 16-year-olds in, I think it was 2007,
0: mm-hmm.
1: had left school at 16. 16. And most of them were not going on to do... Well, obviously, they weren't going to university, because you can't go to university and leave score at 16. They haven't done the necessary exams. But they weren't doing vocational training either. That has come down to 17%, which is still roughly double the EU average, and it's still far too high. And when the Great Recession came as of 2008, after the bursting of the property bubble and the global financial crisis, this was a lost generation. If you had left school at, let's say the year 2000 and you went into construction or tourism, which is a lot, what many of them did and you lost your job at 2000 in 2008, bit difficult for you to go back to school.
0: Yeah. No,
1: eight years have gone by.
0: Yeah.
1: So what you are going to go back to secondary school at 24? If you'd left in 2007, okay. Yes. You've missed a year. You could have gone back. So that's at one end of the scale. At the other end of the scale, you have this is a country with a high proportion of people who have gone to university, but who, when they come out of university, get a job, but very often way below their qualifications. I mean, this has been shown in surveys. It's so these are two like extremes. One extreme, the people who are undereducated, who don't go very far. Always there are exceptions. And then the those who were well-educated who end up with a job that, quite frankly, they didn't need to go to university for. Which is not a reason for not going to university, but, no. but it bleeds a lot of frustration. So that's that's one of the problems. Another problem here is the rote system of learning. You and I come from a country of, what I think is called critical learning, right. you know? yep. whereas we question, we're taught to think and to write. Oh, so not great. to you know learn, the name of every single river in Spain, which I don't know what these kids still do, but they certainly had to do in the past. So that's another problem. And Spain's not the only country that has a road system. Yeah. Teachers, I'm on dangerous ground here because I don't like to slag off teachers, particularly as my wife was a teacher, yeah. but it is no secret that Spain, does, generalizing, does not have as many good teachers as it should have. Sort of, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there. Universities university is here. Courses are being reduced, but this whole idea that you can be in your third year university and you've still got an exam from your first year and maybe two from your second year hanging over you, hanging yeah. over you, and then and then back to secondary schools. That's roughly thirty percent of children who have to repeat a year. Summer comes and parents, you know, tearing a hair out to, to see whether little Jose or little Maria have to repeat a year. And and
0: that is unheard of in the UK. I mean, really, really, really rare for anyone to repeat a year. You
1: have to to be absolutely thick or you've been ill for a year to repeat a year. But here, it is quite common, which then leads to you leaving school at 16. Okay, so they have a big problem in education. And every year, the OECD points these things out and uh, even says things like, you know, Spain is the country who's probably had more educational reforms than most other European countries, but nothing actually has changed.
0: changed. Another huge issue, pensions. What you'd call the dependency ratio. Massively ageing population and not enough, at the other end, working to support, in a nutshell.
1: Exactly, yeah. Well, this is a country, and this is, again, a tribute to Spain, when talking about changes. Your average Spaniard lives ten years more today than he did when Franco died. That's that may huge. not seem very much, but actually yeah. it's, quite, it's quite a change. Testing me to the lifestyle, the eating habits, more, more or less.
0: I think the longest-lived nation now in the world recently uh, overtook no, Japan, really is really that right? Overtook, is it that will
1: overtake way? Japan in, in, in the future. Incidentally, the UK life is going down. It's declining, whereas the Spanish one continues to rise. Not so much now as, say, in the 90s, but it's rising. And I think 83 is the average lifespan. So, pension is a big problem here. So, you have a country with a long life expectancy, a country with a high un- unemployment rate.
0: People having fewer children also? People
1: having fewer children. So, you put that together, what does it mean? In, in a, in a, in a, we have a pay as you go pension system here. In other words, today's workers are paying the pension of tomorrow's retirees. It's the same in the UK. If fewer people are working, then obviously it's going to have an impact on the pension system. So you either have to raise the age at which people can retire, or you have to make people pay higher contributions on their social security, but you can't just sort of let it run and do nothing. Successive governments have been discussing this. There was a reform, which some bits have been populistically undone. For example, but this may get me into trouble with your listeners. The previous reform delinked pension rises from inflation, uh, which kicked up a fuss and uh, with old age people protesting that, you know, my pension in real terms is not what it should well, be. It should but it is it is one of the things that needs to be done here until, until they can sort everything out. Uh, it may not seem very much that you increase your pension by, let's say the inflation rate is 1%. But 1%, when you take that as over the total pension bill, is quite a lot of money. So they reduced it to basically either no increase or I think 0,2%. Anyway, it was de-linked from inflation. That was then restored. The inflation Lake was put back by Mariana Rajoy. Are they going to remove it again along with other reforms who knows of course it's all come about at a time at, at, at the time of covid which has hit the old age population particularly hard but it is a problem here and um, it gets very technical and people don't understand it but it's not something that can be brushed under the carpet.
0: Unemployment Stubbornly high has been for a long time. We did see it decrease over the last few years, but particularly high unemployment among yes. 18 to 24 year olds exactly. connected. I'm I'm imagining with with the education the system of well, early
1: school leavers. It's a whole slew of things. When one looks back at the of the the, the the period known as Las Vacas Gordas, the fat cow period, up until basically from sort of 96, 7, up to 2008, something like that, unemployment never got below 8%. 8% in the country where you and I come from is a disaster, let alone the US. 8%. What were
0: we talking 8%. in the UK? 4%, 4% at the moment? At, at the moment.
1: So they got it down to 8 when the economy, economy was rolling along on the back of an unsustainable construction boom, amongst other things, but essentially that. So that tells you something that's you know, that was the most they've achieved since, is to get that at eight percent since Franco's died. It went up to twenty twenty sixth and it's now it's I think seventeen at the moment.
0: Seventeen percent.
1: Reasons. Tourism accounts for one in seven jobs, twelve percent of the economy. It's not a twelve month a year industry. Obviously if you're running a hotel, you don't well actually some hotels do close in the winter here. True. But, set, but there are some jobs, obviously, that are all year round. But many, many of them are only, you know, the discoteca in Ibiza. It functions basically in July and August, and that's about it. The Chiringuito bars and the Costa del Sol are not open 12 months of the year. Yeah. So it's partly linked to the, the structure of the Spanish economy, which is disproportionately based on tourism and construction. Okay, construction does provide jobs 12 months of the year. But again, it's not as... A sustainable industry in the terms that you can keep on building houses ad infinitum. Ad infinitum,
0: of course not. Okay.
1: Then you have the education bit, where many of the best students can't get the kind of job they want here: doctors, engineers, nurses, scientists, uh, etc.
0: Are we talking about a brain drain then? Yeah, they yeah. well, go abroad. And then you have the other end: the guys who come
1: out at 16, having left school early. Who are they qualified for? They're not going to be taken on by Banco Santander. What opportunities open to them?
0: And also talking about unemployment, I wanted to talk about the dependence, and indeed I have friends who have come up against this over the years, the dependence on temporary contracts in Spain is absolutely right.
1: I think at the moment we're about one in three... Oh, no, one in four, 25 contract- four, four, percent yeah. yeah. is a temporary contract, which endlessly rolled over. The door to that was opened in '84 by the socialist government of Felipe González, as a way to get round the Franco labour laws, which are very paternalistic. Basically, if you were a, a good guy, did your job, didn't get involved in politics, the labour market was quite good to you. And in fact, even if you've been a political prisoner you could go you could go back to your old job and that was a yes. case a case of Marcelino Camacho probably Spain's most famous political prisoner and the key force behind the workers commissions the creation of it that's another problem is what they called insiders and outsiders mm. the outsiders are the temporary temporarily employed people but often just rolled over and endlessly even though the law puts limits on this, and then you have the insiders who are on the contracts everybody wants, which are the permanent contracts,
0: which are much harder to come by. And you're right. You know, I know people who've been on these rolling six-month contracts for years and years and years. I've and then the other many.
1: problem there is that the severance payments for people on permanent contracts, in European terms and everything is relative, but are too expensive, even though they've been reduced. So this is an incentive for companies not to have permanent workers. It Because they won't have to pay so much when they get rid of them.
0: And the other thing that I've noticed happening as well is this culture of what they call falso autonomos, these fake autonomies, people basically working freelance contracts but full time for the same employer based in an office as a way for these uh, employers to avoid paying their social security.
1: Yeah, well, that's, I mean, there have been some court cases on this which Mm. I think, if I remember rightly, have gone against the, the, the employers, but those people do have a job. Albeit they're being exploited, and, but it's not quite the same as those who don't have a job.
0: I, I wanted to get your opinion on this, really. I mean, this is anecdotal, I suppose. I speak to a lot of my Spanish friends. Many of them have this mindset, or say that many Spaniards have this mindset, of the dream job for your average Spaniard is to become a funcionario, yeah. to get a civil service, state government job, because it's super secure, you get a generous pension, it's almost impossible to lose that job. And I was trying to find some stats, and you may well know better than what I could find. I could only find something from 2006. A survey conducted found that 56% of Spaniards then between 16 and 30, were looking specifically for a government job. Which, for me, then, also feeds into this whole idea, which we'll touch on in a second, of the lack of dynamism that there seems to be in, in the Spanish economy, this lack of entrepreneurialism. You've answered the
1: question almost
0: already, because mm. we, why do people want such jobs?
1: Because they are secure and safe and difficult to get rid of mm. in an environment where these people look around and see people losing their jobs uh, or having a temporary job or whatever. So the kind of the two go together. The, yeah. uh, the obsession with becoming a, a civil servant is, is very much related to a labor market that is, that is unstable, that doesn't provide the security that people want. There are lots of entrepreneurs. I always find Spain a very dynamic society. Lots of entrepreneurs go abroad and uh, are successful. It's easier for them to probably be successful abroad than it is here. Mm. Uh, research and development is very low here. It's one of the lowest in, in the European Union. Um, there are plenty of startups here. Some have be very, very successful. But your average, uh, depending which kind of person we're speaking of, you're talking about the guy who left school, well, he can't even think about the civil service job because you need a university degree. So you just forget that lot. Those who come out of university, obviously, um, a civil servant job has its attractions, but they have to go through this, in my view, crazy process of an opposition. I'm
0: glad you said that, because I wanted to touch which, on that.
1: Which I suppose we would translate as a competitive exam, where yeah. basically you lock yourself away for more than a year, maybe two years, or maybe even three, mm. to study to be a state lawyer or a state economist or mm-hmm. state whatever, with no guarantee that you're going to actually get it at the end of the day. So if you don't, you must feel pretty frustrated. You spent three years doing that, because it hasn't got what you wanted. An anecdote here, the house right behind us, we share a wall, Mm. they uh, have four kids, the wife's a notary, and the husband's a state lawyer. And once we were sitting, my wife and I were sitting in our patio, and we could hear what sounded like a chant for prayer in a mosque. (laughs) and we thought what on earth is that and then we twigged that that gonzalo the father the state lawyer was testing he obviously had a student who who was studying the opposition opposition to become a state lawyer Uh that was a woman and he was saying to her right you know article 15 La, 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 and, la, just, and just, just, reeling just it off. spewing it out. Yeah. I mean, yeah, in England, if you want to, yeah, if you want to be a diplomat, so what do you need to do, you need to have a good degree. Then presumably you go along to the foreign office and they have an interview and they may have, you know, a one-hour exam or something. Mm. That's it. Mm. You mm. don't lock yourself away for a couple of but, years.
0: You, to work in a post office, there's an opposition for that. There's an opposition for almost <laughs> <Well, laughs> <I don't laughs> anything. My
1: wife tells a story when she was she she started and ran the British Council's teaching. Uh, English language unit at the University of Alcalá y Nárez so we're talking in the 1990s and there was an opposition to become a portero a doorman like you
0: call yeah. it yeah someone who ma- ma- manned the door
1: yeah presumably at at the university not in a private house and you had some kind of opposition for it yeah, yeah. and she remembers that I think she spotted someone and she may have known him or something and you know why why what are you doing here or something and this guy had I think a doctorate in something rather but he was still trying for the opposition so
0: I mean I I have a a friend of a friend of mine who is studying to be a juez, a judge and I think he's 31, 32 years old. He's been studying oposiciones to be a juez since he left university. He's never had a job. He's never worked. What, All, what, what
1: age was he when he left university?
0: At maybe 24, 25. He, I think he left university, then did a master's. So let's say for the last yeah, six good. years, he's been oppositando. He's taken it and he's waiting with this COVID situation to so see what's happening. he took it last year, then? Yeah, he took it last year. He's waiting wenty- to see. But, I mean, putting that into the context of opposiciones, and I know other I mean, many friends who are nurses who have had to do to to become a nurse and have done it, failed it, Decided to do it again for another year, two years out of their life. Connected with that, while they're studying, they're not working. They're living at home with their parents. I mean, and so there's this kind of knock-on yeah, effect as there's, well that goes with that. a goes joke,
1: that. It's a joke. goes something like, Why are some Spaniards like Jesus Christ? Answer, because they, uh, because they, they leave home in their early 30s. <laughs>
0: Diversification of the economy, we've touched on it already. Tourism, construction. Can Spain ever wean itself off its addiction to investing in building infrastructures instead of investing in people? What would, in your opinion, be the obvious path for diversification?
1: Well, well it's a good area to, to finish, I think, which is the, the U- European Union's recovery, pandemic recovery fund, otherwise yeah. known as um, Next Generation EU, which Spain will stand to receive in the form of grants or loans 140 billion euros, Mm. the second largest amount after Italy. To put that into context, the Marshall Plan of 1948 to rebuild non-communist war-torn Europe after the Second World War, in today's terms, would amount to about 112 billion euros. That's That's the whole of the Marshall Plan. And Spain so I just throw that out so it gives you an idea of the it's size of the money okay vast. it's going to come with very tough conditions it is not oh the money is going to be in the Bank of Bank of Spain tomorrow you can spend it how you want no it is very clear you have to um, present projects that fall into line with the guidelines of the EU so for example digitalization, mm-hmm. green energy. Um, there's a whole list of them. You you can use some towards education, um, labour market reforms possibly, not, I don't think, for pensions. But basically, it, it's to diversify the economy and in Spain's case, make it less dependent on tourism. But this is not a quick fix. It's not as if... Oh, and very importantly, if one European Union objects to the project you present under the scheme, mm-hmm. then the money is stopped, is not dispersed until all the countries have agreed, okay, yes, we'll allow it, or no, we won't. So one That's country true. can hold up the process.
0: So it comes with lots of, well, conditions, with t- lots of
1: conditions. It's not, as Borrell, the um, Spaniard, who's the European Union's um, foreign policy chief, said, your average Joe on the cost of that soul, who's a waiter, you know, for him, the recovery fund means probably absolutely nothing. And what has to be brutal about this, unless he's sufficiently young to be retrained. But it's not going to, you know, offer a quick fix, and you and I, in five years' time or even longer, are going to wake up to discover that this is now on a booming economy on the back of. Um, renewable energy, startups uh, and many other things. Uh, tourism is going to be, and will always be, the number one industry here. Um, but there is an awareness that um, Spain needs to spend, preferably, nothing on physical infrastructure, unless it's, there's a dire need. I mean, the roads here are world-class, The high-speed rail network, the AVE, is the second-largest after China in the world. Mm -hmm. And many other things, infrastructure-wise, are world-class. Spain needs to spend it on human capital, which is one one of the buzzwords of this EU programme, not on um, more physical Mm -hmm. infrastructure, um, in the hope that it will make a more sustainable economy but it's not going to provide someone the other day asked me "Oh, how many jobs will this eu program provide no one has any idea whatsoever i mean it's a stupid question anyway it's you know no one knows how many jobs are going to create it very much depends on spain's ability to plan the projects to execute the projects and to absorb such a large amount of money one should bear in mind that spain's record on using the money to which it is entitled and which it says it is entitled to receive under EU programs, Spain is one of the poorest countries in, in executing that money. So, put it in simple terms, if the EU is going to give Spain 100 euros over four years, Spain so far has only spent 40 of those 100 euros, although it can spend 100, because it has been unable to. Plan and execute um, programmes. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Do you think this fund could be a, a kind of blessing and a curse? They're going to receive this money. We don't know long term if or how many jobs it could create, but that it's forcing Spain's hand in a way to look at new ways to invest this money, of ways of potentially diversifying its economy. That had this not happened, had COVID not happened, it would have continued along the same road.
1: Yeah, I see what we're getting. At. Well, no, I think that you know, had this, um, I mean, it's an awful thing to say, you know, not yeah. for COVID. Spain might never have really got to grips with its education system mm. or its pension system or its labour market, none of which, strictly speaking, fall under the EU recovery programme, although they might be able to find ways around this so that some money could be used. Yeah. For example, if they submitted a project that every single child would have a, a uh, what do you call it, a, a,
0: a tablet, a, or, a tablet yeah.
1: would probably fall under the scheme. Bear in mind, during the pandemic, when schools were closed, um, uh, I think only six out of ten households had digital platforms. So the kids basically have lost a year.
0: You're on your book Which is out at the moment, officially, I think, launched on the 6th of October, Microhistoria de España, which is an updated and extended version of your book, Spain What Everyone Needs to Know, from 2013. Very briefly, what new material have you included in this this new edition, which is instantly published in Spanish?
1: Okay, well, in 2013, Oxford University Press published in their fairly well known series, What Everyone Needs to Know, they included Spain in it, and I did, and I wrote that book. Uh It covers, ridiculous as it may account, many centuries of Spanish history in a maximum of about 60,000 words, which is like 200 and something pages. Espasa, which is part of Planeta, bought the rights to that this year. And so the, the English book, What Everyone Needs to Know, ends in 2012. The Spanish version, which is a translation of the English version, but with me adding bits into Bits that have already been written or I rejigging see. them, mm-hmm. and then I wrote about another thirty thousand words, bringing it up to July of this year. I had to, uh, rather frustratingly, I had to. I closed the book three days before King Juan Carlos fled the country.
0: Oh, what a shame. So, so the book, <laughs> is,
1: the book is not supposed to be, you know, a blow-by-blow account. No, because you know, I cover, I go from the, go from Roman times up until this year, up until Covid, in 328 pages, in the format of question and answers, which is quite an interesting format. The yeah. Other mini-histories have been written, and it's, done, it's not done by themes, which some books have done, it's done chronologically. So for example, there's a, there's a, a long first chapter that goes from Roman times up to the end of the Civil War. But it includes, I like to think, a lot of what are the most important stuff. Yeah. Of course, my let let out is that in an introduction, I I say very clearly that this is a Miko Historia, and it does not pretend to cover everything. And all I can hope for is that it encourages people to explore further. So there are two final chapters. uh, One which basically goes from 2012... To 2019, politically and economically, so it takes in, okay. takes in more of the crisis, Rahoy, the arrival of Pedro Sanchez, okay. etc. Then a final chapter which is called "Quo Vard is Spain?" Where well, where is Spain going? Which throws it forward a bit, okay. and includes COVID. But I uh, say it is not a encyclopaedia, profound book. It is supposed to be a reasonably good read. It's used by universities, the English version, and hopefully the Spanish version will be although it's not written for students. I mean, it's aimed at a, at a literate, fairly intelligent audience.
0: But as a way of provoking people to go on and delve deeper into those subjects. William, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Thank you. My pleasure. So that was William Chislett. A big thank you to you, William, for uh, taking the time to join me on the When in Spain podcast. So I'll leave it there for this episode. Next week, I've got another fantastic guest lined up, uh, interview already recorded. Uh, If you're into books about Spain and a very famous author who wrote a lot about Spain, who was a big Spain fan as well, and derived a lot of inspiration for his works uh, from spending a lot of time here in Spain, particularly Madrid. So there's a few clues and a few hints for you there. Um, I've got a great guest who's an expert on this writer. Um, I'm not going to give any more uh, details away than that. Just uh, be sure to tune in for the next episode and find out what that's all about. As always, thank you for listening. Don't forget, if you do enjoy this podcast, you have found it useful or entertaining or interesting, um, please do consider signing up to become a When In Spain patron. It really does make all the difference to me. As I said, uh, this is an independent podcast and uh, the small donations that uh, uh, very kind patrons make each month really go a long way in helping uh, cover the cost and my time in putting this show together and I would love to keep putting the show together for you for as long as possible been going for about two and a half years now let's see if we can make it another two and a half years I've got loads of things that I still like to cover in the podcast uh, loads more guests lined up for the coming months so uh, yeah please do consider if you can make a small donation and if you can't do that you're not in a position to make a small donation to out the podcast. Another thing that really helps is sharing the podcast with uh, friends family anyone who might be interested in spain Uh, spread the word about the when in spain podcast the other thing that really helps is uh, hit the subscribe button if you listen on uh, uh, apple or i think uh, spotify or you can follow the podcast it helps push the uh, podcast up the uh, podcast charts helps more people discover the show and another thing which is really good as well if you have a spare few minutes even while you're listening to the podcast to leave a short review wherever you listen um I know not all podcast platforms give you the option to leave uh, reviews, but many of them do. And if uh, you use one that does let you do that, please uh, consider writing a short review of the podcast uh, or leaving a little uh, five star rating. I would hugely appreciate it. I'm going to shut up now. I've got to go and get ready to teach English and I will speak to you next week. Until then, as always, hasta luego.